have your copy of God's Word, I ask you to turn to the book of 2 Timothy this morning. To Timothy chapter 4. If you're using one of our uh, Bibles from the chairs in front of you, you'll find our text on page 996. 996. The letter that we're looking at this morning is Paul's letter to Timothy, the second one that he wrote, at least the second one that we have. And it's written during his second Roman imprisonment. This would also be his last imprisonment and his last letter that he would write. And Paul knew that it would be his last. He tells Timothy in chapter 4, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. At the time of my, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have, fin- I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is telling Timothy that he knows his death is imminent. But he doesn't know how soon it might be. It might be days. It might be weeks. It could even be months. But he knows it is ending soon under Roman imprisonment and he tells Timothy to come and see him if at all possible before the end. He even asks him, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and also the books and above all the parchments. Paul as the winter is coming on is getting cold and he wants more than anything else to have his books and especially the parchments which we believe are the scriptures. But what if he isn't able to see Timothy again? Is this the last thing he's going to write to him? I'm about to die. Come and, and minister to me and bring encouragement to me with this cloak and these books. Come that I might see your face one more time. No, Paul knows he may never see Timothy again. That meeting may not come. And so he writes to Timothy his final words of encouragement and instruction. Thus, to Timothy represents the last instructions we have from the great apostle to his uh, friend who is both his pastor and his ministry partner. And it stands as a pattern of instruction for all who would seek to serve the church in pastoral ministry. So this morning there is a real sense in which um, Pastor Richard and Pastor Joe and I are under the hand of God more severely as this sermon is preached. That is why I believe Pastor Richard has already made his exit Uh, but uh, we've promised that we will record this and let him listen to it at least twice. (laughs) All three of us are sitting very much, as it were, like Timothy at the feet of the apostle this morning, hearing his instruction as if it were written to us today. But that does not leave the rest of you out either. Pastors are to set the example in life and godliness, but more than that, the church needs to know what kind of men their pastors should be. This is instruction for you as well, not just in how you should live, but how you should pray and how you should encourage your pastors, whoever they may be. What we see here is the simple, clear, unyielding message message to keep the faith. That is, to continue to to guard the deposit entrusted to Timothy, to preserve the gospel even in the midst of suffering. And thus, Paul says in chapter 1, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 
But more than that, Paul tells Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul has four generations in mind here when he writes these words to Timothy in chapter 2. He thinks of himself and the gospel that he passed on to Timothy, whom he instructs now to pass on to other faithful men who will in turn pass it on to a next generation of faithful men. The message of 2 Timothy then is this, preserve the gospel and gospel churches. That is, maintain the message of the gospel itself, the message that you yourself have believed, but more than that also, make sure that message resides in the church, that the gospel is laid both as a foundation and is put at the center of all of the church's life and ministry. Just as Paul spoke those words to Timothy, so also God is speaking those same words to us today, giving us the same message and the same calling. Preserve the gospel and gospel churches. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we preserve that message and make sure that churches uh, continue on built around that message? Well, Paul has written his whole letter explaining that. But all of this instruction comes to a climax in chapter 4. And that's what we're going to look this morning, specifically at the first five verses. And so let me encourage you again, follow along as I read uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of God this morning. Thanks be to God. From this text and this letter, we see that if we are going to preserve the gospel and gospel churches, we need to do at least four things. First, we need to preach the word. We need to preach the word. This whole paragraph is built around this central command found in verse 2, preach the word. What word is this that Timothy is supposed to be preaching? It is the word of God. In fact, the word of God that Paul has just talked about in chapter Three, it is the word that brings life and change to God's people. Paul uh, has just said, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. He is saying that scripture is the word of God, breathed out by him, inspired by him, so thoroughly his words, it's as if they have come off his very lips. And these are powerful words, as Paul says, words that by the power of the Spirit can be used to teach, to rebuke, to reorient our lives from selfish sinfulness to a God-centeredness. They are effective and powerful to train us for righteousness so that in all these things, the man of God, the pastor of God's people is sufficiently equipped for every part of ministry. There is nothing that he is not fit to do or to see happen apart from this book. In other words, this book, the Word of God, is all that he needs. And what is Timothy to do with these powerful words? Paul says, you must preach them. 
That is, you must employ them in the way they were meant to be used. They are only powerful and effective if they are proclaimed. In chapter 3, Paul has already reminded Timothy that he has learned the word, he has believed the word, and now he reminds them that the essence of his calling as a pastor is to preach the word. And understand, uh, teaching God's word, sharing it can, can, can come about in a lot of different ways, but Paul here says, preach it. That doesn't mean share it. That doesn't mean discuss it. It means announce it. Herald it out like a messenger from a king who would come and stand in the center of the city and issue a proclamation for all the people to heed. So also Timothy is to proclaim the word. Now surely Paul has told Timothy this before. He has modeled this for him. He has instructed him. Why is he telling him this? Why does he make such a point of it? Well, I think there's at least two reasons. First of all, because this is his final word to Timothy. He doesn't know if he's going to see him face to face again. He wants to, but these may be the last things that he can say to him. And he wants to enforce and encourage him to remember what the very essence of his ministry is as a pastor. And it does not get more essential than this. Preach the word. But secondly, remember to whom he is writing. He is writing to this man, Timothy. What do we know about him as a person? What do we know about the situation he is in? Well, we need not speculate because Paul tells us by the kinds of things that he writes to him. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, No longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. In 1 Timothy 4, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And in our book this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Now, taking comments like this and other things that we know from the New Testament, we get a picture of Timothy as a young man with frequent and inconvenient health problems, having been given this immense responsibility to go and shepherd the churches of Ephesus, rooting out false teachers that may come. All the while, his mentor, his advisor, his chief encourager, is locked away in prison for preaching the very word that he is telling Timothy to preach. There was likely a natural tendency for him to feel not up to the task for which he was called, to perhaps even feel fearful about the task that he was called to do. And Paul says, you can't be fearful. You, you can't just think of yourself as a young man. You can't get worried about your stomach all the time. You've got a job to do. You have an assignment that must be completed. You are to preach the word and to do so without fear. Do not stand off to the side making comments here or there. Stand up in the midst of God's people and preach. Open up the scriptures you've believed since childhood and proclaim them without fear. That is what Paul tells him. Preach the word. Specifically in verse 2, preach it in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That is to say, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient, preach the word. When you preach, preach from all the scriptures that the people will be called out in such a way that they will be uh, able to see clearly their sin and be convicted by it, but also be encouraged by the forgiveness of God in Christ. Preach in such a way that the church is taught, but all the while, he says, do so patiently. Remember, 
remember. People have lived their whole lives in sin. People have been called out of pagan worship, and that means their sin is now habitual. It means they, they do it all the time. It is a way of life for them. Preach for change, but do so patiently, remembering, remembering that change takes time. Even by the power of the Word of God, change takes time. So love the people. Yes, point out sin to them, but remind them of the cross and be patient with them. This is the same call for pastors today, to preach the Word. As Kent Hughes so rightly says, preaching is not a matter of preference or natural giftedness as we understand it. It is simply a matter of obedience. Therefore, church, pray that your pastors are faithful to that calling. More than that, if we are going to see uh, the gospel preserved and gospel churches preserved, we must not only preach the word, we must remember the Lord's return. Remember the Lord's return. Many of you will recognize the name John MacArthur. He's not only one of the authors of a community group book that we looked at a few years ago, he's also uh, a very long-serving pastor in California. And he has often told the story of his own calling to ministry, him going to seminary to study there under a professor named Charles Feinberg. Feinberg was a brilliant man who spoke 30 languages, was committed to the scriptures and preparing men for gospel ministry. Yes, 30 languages. Some of you blinked up. Did I hear that right? Yes, 30 languages. MacArthur greatly admired Feinberg and he sought him out, not just as a professor, but also as a mentor for his studies. MacArthur found himself greatly encouraged by him and greatly taught by him. And it, in this particular seminary, the uh, students that were going on to be ministers were given the opportunity to preach in chapel. I have to say I'm glad that my own seminary was much smarter than that. Uh, nevertheless, MacArthur was given the opportunity to preach in seminary chapel and Feinberg, along with the rest of the faculty, was sitting right behind him in what was probably at sometimes the choir loft. And MacArthur said he really wanted to please his mentor, his professor, this man who had invested so much into him. And so he preached like crazy that morning. His text was 2 Samuel 7, and his theme was not to presume on God. After that sermon, John MacArthur said he turned from the pulpit as he went down and he looked and he saw the face of his mentor, Dr. Feinberg, and it was long and sad. When he got back his evaluation sheet, he says from Dr. Feinberg had signed across, uh, across the page with nothing else filled out were these giant words, you missed the whole point of the passage. In other words, you blew it, Johnny. You weren't the Mac Daddy back then. You blew it. You made a royal hash of it. And MacArthur was crushed. I mean, he wanted to please and make happy his mentor, and it was the opposite. So he went to his office and, and to talk with him and said, well, you know, what, what happened? What did I do wrong? And Feinberg apparently told him, if you're going to preach like that, MacArthur, don't preach ever again. Because you didn't preach the text. You didn't preach the point of the passage. And MacArthur said it was a life-changing moment for him where in the midst of being crushed and heartbroken and let, being, uh, having let down this man who meant so much to him, he always purposed to preach the text. Now you can imagine how he felt. You can imagine how he felt. You can imagine perhaps people in your own life that you have looked up to and you have let down. And yet, listen to what Paul says to Timothy, the context of preaching the word in verse 2 comes in the context again of verse 1, I charge you. 
to preach the word. How does this charge come? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom preach the word. You think it's, diff- you think it's disappointing to disappoint and let down a seminary professor? What about Christ? What about letting Him down? How bad is that? It's His church we're supposed to be shepherding. It's His word we're supposed to be preaching. Do you want to carry out your calling in such a way that He comes back and gives you a disappointed look and hands you a slip of paper that says, You blew it. You did horrible pastoring my church. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't think... Joe and Richard do either. Notice what it says. Jesus Christ is coming again and at His appearing He will establish His kingdom and judge the living and the dead. Everyone will stand before Him. So what is He going to judge? Well, at least two things. First, you will be judged on whether or not you rejected or accepted God. Have you refused the plain truth of His his existence? Have you refused His common grace which helps you to know He is there? the all-powerful Creator, the one who is deserving of your worship? Have you rejected Him as God and Creator and therefore the rightful authority in your life living as your own God, as your own King, as your own authority? If so, then you will be judged and you will be found wanting. For your rebellion, you will experience God's wrath forever. What about those who have not rejected God? What about those who have seen His existence? They have seen His authority as Creator and they have seen the wickedness of their own hearts in in repentance. And with great contrition, they have turned away from their life of sin. They have looked to Christ as their Savior knowing that He can bring them to God because He offers a righteousness that is not their own but His own. And He offers that the payment has already been made on the cross having suffered under God's wrath for your sin. They will not be found wanting, but they will be found righteous in Christ and accepted by God. Nevertheless, they too will be judged, not for their sins, but for how they lived their lives before God. How did they make use of the time God gave them, the money God gave them, the resources like cars and houses and talents and abilities? Their salvation will not be at stake, but rather what will be in view is their rewards and responsibilities in the new heaven and the new earth. Thus, everyone, regardless of life, will stand before God. Whether you're a Christian or not, this has relevance for you this morning. Whether you're a pastor or not, if you're here as a Christian, this has relevance for you. You're going to stand here saying, either I need to accept Christ, be reconciled to God through Him, or I've already accepted Christ and been reconciled to God through Him, but I know I'm not living, I'm not living in a way that shows I actually honor God with my life, in which case repentance and change must happen. Nevertheless, notice the immediate context of this comes to those given the charge to preach the word and see the solemnity of that charge. This charge to preach is not a job. It's certainly not a profession. It's a calling that God places in the lives of certain men. And part of that calling means preaching the word whether or not it's easy, whether or not it's comfortable, preaching in such a way the church can be both corrected and encouraged, and false teaching rooted out, and the gospel preserved. Why? Because Christ is coming back for His bride. Therefore, may His pastors be found faithful at His return. The third thing that we need to do to preserve the gospel and gospel churches is that we must desire to hear the truth. 
we must desire to hear the truth. Now, again, everything that we've said has a broad sense of application for everyone, whether or not you're a pastor. But here is where uh, the congregation is most especially in view. Timothy's been given the charge, preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why does he need to be told this? Because, he says in verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Says there is a time coming when people will not care about the truth. More than that, they will not endure it. In other words, they don't just show up in the pew and are lackadaisical about the preaching. They refuse to listen to it. They get mad and they either get a new pastor or they go find a new church because they just don't want to hear the truth. Instead, they want to hear vain myths that mean absolutely nothing rather than appreciate the truth. Now, I'm sure that was already the case in Paul's day and it's all the more so here. Entire cults are created, entire religions, because people don't want to hear the truth. They want to decide what is the truth. And you have groups that use the Christian scriptures and yet don't actually care about what they teach. They have their own ideas that they want to use the scriptures to endorse. More than that, there are churches that were once completely orthodox and now are no longer orthodox. They have rejected the truth outright. They don't want to hear about difficult doctrines. They don't want to hear about things like God's judgment. They don't want to hear about the exclusivity, exclusivity of Christ. That apart from Him, no one can be saved, no matter how well-intentioned. And so things like the, the virgin birth and substitutionary atonement and the eternality of hell are all written off and reinterpreted. Now, I think we see it here and we realize those things are wrong. But frankly, it's more subtle than that. It's far more subtle than that. Because very often, even sitting here, even saying with our lips we want the truth, we actually don't want the truth. I had someone ask me one time, why can't you just preach like Pastor so-and-so down the road at the other church? How does Pastor so-and-so preach? The response I got was basically, he preaches on, 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 on things that will help people get their life right, okay? What, what does that mean? It means he preaches on things like divorce and pornography and gambling and drinking. And he tells people how it is. Okay? Do you struggle with those things? Absolutely not. Okay? So what you're saying to me then is this. What you want to hear is preaching that tells everybody else how bad they are, but just says how good you are. You see how subtle that is? to desire to hear about how bad the world is, about how bad it is everybody else is living, and yet to refuse to allow the Spirit to take the sword and to cut deep into our own heart and bring conviction and encouragement to it. It seems in Paul's words this individual wanted a preacher that suited their own passions rather than hearing what God's passions were from his word. That's not how the gospel is preserved. That's not the way gospel churches are preserved. Legan Duncan Wiley advises that all of us, when we come together, we should worship the living God in such a way that we come longing for His Word. That His Word sets the agenda for what we need rather than the whims of this world for the unsanctified desires of our hearts. That when we come, what we say we need, rather that we come wanting what He says we need rather than what we think we do need. 
And so when we come to church, we sit under the preaching and the teaching, and our response is always to pray this, Lord, because this is what you say I need in my word, then help me to want it. Help me to want it. You see, our sinful hearts don't want it. Our sinful hearts don't want the truth. Our sinful hearts want to stop our ears up and to run away and say, la, 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 not listening. And what we need to say, God, I can't have that right attitude. That's not the attitude to have. This is your word. This is your truth. Even if it hurts to hear it, I need to hear it. Help me to long to hear it. Help me to want to hear it. But what should a pastor do when that's not in the prayer of his people? Paul says even when his people reject the truth, Timothy and all pastors should serve the church faithfully. This is the last thing we'll see this morning. Serve the church faithfully. Paul ends this charge to Timothy and to pastors in verse 5. He says that in the midst of difficulty, instability of church members and those that would twist the gospel, Timothy should always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, and fulfill his ministry. To be sober-minded means Timothy is to keep his head. He isn't to be rattled by what he sees around him or by what he experiences through the ups and downs of life. Unlike those who would be tossed around and lose their way, the minister must be steady for the sake of God's people. More than that, he is to endure suffering. In fact, while he's writing, Paul himself is suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel. In chapter 1, he says it is specifically for that gospel message that he has suffered and even now in chains. In chapter 3, he reminds Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Did you, did you get that? All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. What does that mean? It means this, the gospel is not preserved. And gospel churches are not preserved when God's people run from suffering. Did you, did you get that? We do not fulfill our calling in life and we betray what we really desire if we run from suffering. Specifically, suffering for the sake of the gospel. So, so, so when you're standing in line at Starbucks or at McDonald's and someone says to you, how are you doing today? And you say, well, I'm a little tired. You know, why is that? Because you just, I just, you know, came off a, a three-day retreat with all, you know, with, uh, at this convention trying to reorganize these things. And they say, what kind of convention was it? And you realize you're hesitating because you don't want to say a convention of Baptist churches because of what this, this server may think of you. You realize you're running from suffering. You don't want godliness. You're not prepared to stand up for the gospel. You're not fulfilling your ministry like a good minister of Jesus Christ. And yet that's the thing that Paul says that we are to do. Jesus was the one who said, in fact, that if they persecuted him, they would surely persecute his disciples. So we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. Third, Paul says, Timothy is to do the work of an evangelist. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean just sharing the gospel, going from church to church, standing on street corners? Is that what we typically think of with, with an evangelistic setting? Probably not. Uh, that's relatively new phenomenon. I think J.B. Phillips probably gets to the heart of what Paul means when he paraphrases this as make the preaching of the good news your life's work. In other words, the gospel should always be on your lips, whether it's to lost people that have never heard it or whether it's to people inside the church that need to be reminded of who God is and how they are to relate to Him. We are to preserve the gospel by continually preaching it. 
Finally, Timothy is to fulfill his ministry. That is, he is to keep working at doing all that God has called him to do. And if he does all these things, then he will be faithfully serving the church. Pastor Alistair Begg once said at a gathering of other pastors that it was this verse, verse 5, that had become for him an anchor in life and ministry. He says when he wakes up on Monday morning, he wonders, uh, you know, what am I going to do this week? Uh, what should I be doing? He says he remembers verse 5, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He said in the off chance he has a good sermon and someone tries to encourage him and his soul is lifted up and he wonders, what do I do with this? Verse 5 comes to mind. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. When the storms of life begin to to beat him down and he feels like running away, he remembers, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Loved ones, so much of this has been geared right towards us pastors, but so much of it can also be applied in broad ways to all of God's people. And especially as we think about the culture that we live in that is increasingly hostile towards everything that Christianity holds dear, all of us are called to work together to preserve the gospel and gospel churches. So by the grace of God, let us do that together. Father, we're thankful for your word. God, we're so thankful for your calling on our life as your people. God, we pray that despite our frailty, despite our weaknesses, that God, we would treasure your word above all things. That Father, in your word, we would find our own hearts being challenged and encouraged. And that God, we would be prepared to not only hear your word, but that we would also be prepared to share it and to speak it to one another. God, that your pastors would be prepared prepared to declare it and proclaim it without fear. To simply preach what is there. Father, we pray that in every way you will help us to, to do these things so that your timeless, eternal message of the good news might never be corrupted or twisted or thrown away. And that God, churches will be continually built up through it. We ask it in Jesus' name.